So we are in Acts chapter 17, and today's message is entitled, Reasonable. Um, you may not know, or you may know, of a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard lived uh, as a, philo a Danish philosopher in the 1800s. He's the father of existentialism, and he spent his life basically arguing with the state church. And uh, now I tell you about Soren Kierkegaard, first of all, he's got one of those cool zeros in his name. I don't even know what that's called. Is there any Danish people here that know the name for that? All right, nobody knows, but it's cool. I want one in my name. Anyway, other than that, uh, it doesn't fit in Dave. But uh, other than that, uh, Soren Kierkegaard was known and probably is best known for something that he called the leap of faith. Now, in, in the face of what Kierkegaard was trying to wrestle with in the state church, it was good. He was trying to wrestle for individualism. And in other words, he was trying to say, don't just blindly go with whatever the state church tells you. Use your individual mind that God gave you. And that was a good thing. I suppose the bad part about existentialism is that it's eked into our culture today so that everything is existential. Everything is individualized down to the, the smallest minute detail. Soren Kierkegaard had a hard time wrestling with what he considered to be incongruencies in Scripture. Now, uh, I don't consider those to be incongruencies. I think scripture as a, as a whole works, speaks a message, a very clear message from God, and it's without error. But uh, Soren Kierkegaard couldn't get around that. He just couldn't get his mind around that. And so what he said is to believe in Jesus, everyone was, must make what he called a leap of faith. Uh, a leap of faith is simply this. I can't intellectually get around it. It might not be true, so I'm just going to jump into the blind and trust it anyway. And that's what Kierkegaard reasoned was a leap of faith. Now, as I hope you can imagine, I'm not a big fan of Kierkegaard or of the leap of faith. And here's why. In, in so many ways, I think without realizing it, most people have accepted Kierkegaard's definition of faith as the actual definition of faith. It's almost like faith is believing something you know can't possibly be true. That would be a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. I'm just going to do it. And that is not the faith of the Bible. Faith in our culture has become Walt Disney's belief in magic or Santa Claus, you know, more faith means more Santa magic or people chanting in movies, I believe, I believe, I believe, so that the magic comes back. And so, you, what, what you need to understand is that's not the Bible's definition or understanding of faith. Because that kind of faith, this faith that is just merely a blind leap into nowhere, leads us with, well, I think it's the result, it leads us with what we know today as modern-day Mormonism. This belief in something that, if you study it, cannot possibly be true and isn't even congruent. It doesn't even make sense. It's so absurd, but if you make a leap of faith, it can become true for you. So many times as Christians, we have settled on this definition of faith. We've settled on this definition of faith that says, you know what? I can't explain Christianity, so I'm just going to make a leap of faith. But I need you to know today that Christianity is a reasoned faith, and it should be talked about in a reasonable way. Christianity is a reasoned faith that should be talked about in a reasonable way. That's where we land today, I think, in the book of Acts. In, in, of course, I remind you this every week. I remind you of the structure of Acts. 
And in Acts 1.8, remember, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. you you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This becomes the outline of the book of Acts. It started in Jerusalem, the second section, it moved to Judea and Samaria, and now we're talking about it to the ends of the earth. And like I remind you every week, Paul went on a first missionary journey, and he focused mostly in this area of Turkey that you can see here on the map. If, uh, I always like to throw this up here for you uh, cartographic people. And so uh, there you see the area of the first missionary journey that he uh, that he ministered in. On the second missionary journey, he starts in that area again. He goes back and revisits all those people. But where we move to now is, remember Paul received the Macedonian call, a vision of someone saying, come over here and help us. So Paul, as you can see, got on a boat, crossed the river into Macedonia, this area of northern Greece, and that's where we're at right now. And this is important to remember, to just to keep the whole story in context. Paul has been going from town to town to town. He started in Philippi, and you'll remember that from uh, a couple weeks ago or from last week back. And, and then he got driven out of Philippi. He was thrown in jail and then escorted out of the town. And today we're going to see him go to two different Macedonian towns, Thessalonica and Berea. And so that's the context of where we're at in the book of Acts. Now you need to understand here that as Paul goes into Thessalonica and Berea, we're going to see a common theme. We're going to see a common thing that Paul does, and it helps us to, it reminds us that Christians and Christianity, Christianity is a reasoned faith that should be talked about in a reasonable way. If Acts is about the church unleashed on the world, it makes some sense to learn about some of the lessons here that were taught to us about being the church unleashed. Now, let's be honest. Most of us Christians in our culture have been Shamed or pushed to the side or taught that it is not appropriate to ever talk about religion in any context ever. So most Christians are terrified to talk about their Christian, Christian faith because you know, they're terrified of losing their job or losing friends or being that weird person in their neighborhood or estranged family relationships or just being that weirdo. And most Christians are like, well, you know, it takes a leap of faith anyway to get there, and so if I made it, but if you can't make it, that's okay. But what I want you to understand is that Christianity is not like this. It's a reasoned faith, and there's a reasonable way to talk about it. And if faith in the Christian realm means believing something that no rational person can believe, then we should never talk about it. But Christianity is not unreasonable. Men and women for 2,000 years have been putting Christianity through the rigorous intellectual tests. Time and time again, the Bible passes these tests. And so today, I want to talk about how Paul shares the good news of Jesus in a reasonable way because it's a reasonable faith. And as Paul moves into these two towns that are on the outskirts of Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, Paul, we're going to see that Paul helps us figure out how to do this. So the question is, how do we talk about our faith? How do we have an intelligent, reasonable discussion about who Jesus is and what we believe? Now, and I can tell you it's not in a leap of faith. We don't just say, well, it's true for me, but, you know, if that's true for, not true for you, that's fine. Or I don't expect you to be able to ever understand this because I didn't, don't understand it. I just choose to believe. That is not what we're talking about. And that's not how Paul talks about Jesus. Now, I want to make a, there's sort of a disclaimer at this point. Today we're talking about talking about Jesus. 
And this is going to make some of you really uncomfortable. Uh, it, sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about talking about Jesus. And most of us are satisfied to just go through life and never mention the name of Jesus in our lives. But if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we have to know how to talk about him in a reasonable way. And so it might make you a little uncomfortable today, but, you know, the Bible has a way of doing that to us. The Bible seems to sometimes make us uncomfortable, and that's a good thing because God is aiming to change our lives. And so my aim today is to take away some of the myth about talking about Jesus so it's not so weird. How do we talk about Jesus in a reasonable way? I say all that to get us to the text today. All of that. And the first way we do this is we see Paul do this. We, We do it by creating dialogue. One of the obstacles in talking about Jesus is intimidation about evangelism. You know, it's just a grave misunderstanding. We, we think that Christians are we're supposed to take our little tracks around and sort of slap people with them and, you know, go, can I read this track with you? Can I read this track with you? Can I read this track with you? And, you know, sort and I think sometimes we get this idea from what uh, some of the cults do when they share their, their religion. You know, they go door to door. Jehovah's, how many of you have had a Jehovah's Witness at your door or a Mormon at your door? I mean, they get spiritual points for going out. Even if no one ever responds, they get extra spiritual points in their religion. By the way, over Christmas when, when I was, uh, had a few days at home there, uh, it was like two degrees outside and the doorbell rang. Uh, we were playing Catan with the family and I was like, that's weird. Clarissa goes to the door, and there are a pair of Mormons at the door in two-degree weather. I'm like, wow, you are crazy. <laughs> you know, they're freezing and bundled up. But, you know, you got to give them points. They're committed. But sincerity and commitment do not make true. Just because you are sincere doesn't make something true or even reasonable. It, you can be sincerely wrong about something. So what we need to do is create a dialogue about a reasonable faith. And watch how Paul does this. In in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So they drove right to, through, well, walked right to, through two towns and got to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, Paul passed through these towns. He was not anxious at this point to repeat the events of Philippi. You remember at Philippi, there was no synagogue. So he went down to the river and found some religious people and dialogued with them about Jesus. And then Lydia came to faith. Eventually, he got thrown into jail. And, uh, and they were looking to persecute Paul. But he claimed, uh, held on to his Roman citizenship so that he wouldn't get beaten again. And, uh, and he's released uh, from Philippi, and he is not anxious to repeat this. So he's looking for a synagogue with where he can interact with some Jewish people about their commonalities in the faith. Verse 2, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. So over th- the course of three Saturdays, Paul went into the local synagogue and talked. He was in, he was in uh, this town probably longer than that, but Luke is just referencing us these three Saturdays he walked in and he, and, he, uh, and he talked to them. And what we learn here from Paul is that we learn about how he created dialogue. There's some key words in the text that are going to point us to this, about how Paul created dialogue that was reasonable, a reasonable dialogue about a reasoned faith. And so what we do is we run in here into these three words on these three Sabbath days. 
And the first thing we see that Paul did to create dialogue is he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. Look what the text says. He went into the synagogue on this three Sabbath days, verse 2, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That word reasoned is a pretty fun word. Uh, it's, it's the, the, the word reasoned is the, in, the, in the Greek, it's the word dialegomai, which you might hear the word dialogue out of that word. We, we get our English word dialogue uh, from, from this word dialegomai. So you sort of hear the word dialogue. Now, uh, it, it literally does mean to, to converse or to create a conversation. That might be generous to say that Paul was just creating a conversation. Paul was making a clear presentation. But what he does is he creates room for dialogue. He reasoned with them. Paul is creating a conversation. Um, Paul was making a presentation. People were listening, but he observed. And what this word indicates is that he would take interruptions. He would listen to their thoughts. And he had these dialogues. There was a reasoning that happened in these dialogues and some give and take. I find that this for us, is a great and fantastic place to start. Where Paul maybe had an avenue in the synagogue to just get up and start talking, uh, sometimes we have to start with the listening part. Sometimes being part of a reasoned faith means I'm willing to listen first. Sometimes it's just a matter of asking questions. I need to create an environment where people, because most people don't even want to talk about this stuff. And so we create, sort of create an environment by asking questions and listening. What's going on in your life? <laughs> That's a great question to ask. What's going on? Tell me what's going on in your life. Boom. Everybody loves to talk about themselves. It's just a universal principle. People love to talk about themselves. And if we are willing to actually listen, we create dialogue. We create opportunities to listen and speak. You can ask a question, what role does God play? You know, God is okay in our culture. You know, Jesus is a little riskier. God's okay. Have you ever thought about what Jesus thinks of that? There's another question you could ask. I mean, if you get into a conversation, can I tell you what Jesus has done for me when I was going through something like that? I'm just sometimes creating a conversation. In our culture, when people know that we care, they're more willing to tell us what they think and then listen to what we think. You know, I, um, people are doing this all over. Like, I, I hear continually about people at Waukee Community Church doing this kind of thing. I'm hearing about conversations happening, you know, with foreign exchange students and coworkers and family members. It's not hard. It starts with listening. That's why the word is reasoned. It's a dialogue. Paul reasoned with them. And this moves us to point two uh, uh, under here, creating dialogue. And then the second thing he did is that he explained. The second word that uh, I want to talk about is explained. So he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So the, the second word here is explained. And, and this is the word, literally it means opened. He opened. Um, there's a context for this. Remember, Luke wrote Acts, but he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so oftentimes he uses the same language, and we can figure out what he means by stuff by looking back at the Gospel of Luke when that word was used. And this word was used in Luke 24, 32. You might remember this story. G, uh, Jesus has died, and he's risen from the dead, but people don't know it yet. 
And there's a couple of followers of Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus. They're on this journey to Emmaus. And uh, all of a sudden, this stranger appears and he's talking to him. And of course, we know that that stranger was actually Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. And so they're talking and they said, haven't you heard what was going on to this guy? And all of a sudden, Jesus, who they don't recognize, opens up the scripture as they're walking and starts explaining to them about himself, about how he had to die and how he had to rise from the dead. And so by the end, Jesus, of course, disappears. And then they realize, oh, how did we not know? And here's what they say. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like this unveiling, this, oh, he took the blinders off and helped us to see what scriptures really said. The idea here is unlocking something, the word opened. Something to see, I wanted you to see that you hadn't seen before. For Paul, he had to show the Jews the scriptures in a way they hadn't seen before. He had to point out things that maybe they misunderstood because they, they misunderstood Jesus. Paul's walking in here and, and some of these Jews here that he's talking with, they didn't understand who Jesus was. They missed it. They thought he was just a guy. You and I have to know the word of God well enough to be able to talk through who Jesus is. Because in our culture, people do not understand who Jesus is. Most people, they don't care if you know the chapter and verse. They, they don't need you to go, oh, you know, in, uh, in Romans 15, 2, it's a, they don't need to know that. They just need you to explain to them what the Bible actually says who Jesus is. What we must do to explain the story of Jesus, we have to understand the Bible. Because we live in a post-Christian world. Most people, including church-going people, think Jesus is like sort of this American cultural religious thing. You know, it doesn't really matter uh, what Jesus you believe in. Uh, you know, Jesus was clearly probably a nice guy or maybe at best kind of a fable that turned into what he is today. We can learn how to be better, more moral people and contribute to the good of society by sort of once a week listening to the teachings of Jesus. That's what most people think about Jesus. So what our job is and what Paul did for these Jews was he opened the scripture. Not, we don't, that word doesn't mean we literally like have to go to the, open a Bible and point to the page. No, he unveiled it. And we have to unveil a misunderstanding about Jesus. When you talk to somebody and you're creating a dialogue, you just need to go into it with the understanding. They probably don't know who Jesus really is. They probably don't have a correct or proper understanding that Jesus is the Son of God who came down to this earth, who lived a sinless life, who died in our place to take the penalty that we deserve, who rose from the dead, who poured out his spirit upon us. They probably don't understand any of that about Jesus. They just think he's a religious thing. So we have to open we have to understand who Jesus is enough to be able to talk about him. That's what Paul's doing here with the Jews. In dialogue, we have to present a unique Jesus. In this existential culture, the easiest way to do this is probably to talk about why Jesus is meaningful to you. That's creating dialogue. We do this by being reasoned. We do this by opening or explaining. And then the last word here under this first point about creating dialogue that I want to point to you at is the word proved. So Paul explained... And proved 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Proving simply, this word simply means carefully answering questions placed before him. That's what he was doing. He was carefully answering the questions that were placed before him. Okay, so uh, sometimes we don't process how hard it would be for a Jewish person to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Most Jews had this understanding that they were in a bad place as a nation. Rome was in power. Rome was oppressing them. They had to be very careful in, in working under Rome. But they longed for a Messiah who would come and be victorious and conquer Rome and deal with Rome so they could, God could set up shop through his people again and his people could be self-governing and then impact the name of God across the, the whole world. That's how they saw that the Messiah was. He was a victorious figure. And so when Paul went and said, Jesus is the Messiah, people went, what? I heard about that Jesus. He got crucified. Like no Messiah does that. This is not the Messiah. And so what Paul had to do is he had to explain that Christ had to suffer. If we jump back to that story I was telling you earlier about the, the two the men on the road to Emmaus, and if we jump back to that story, remember I was talking about how the, after Jesus disappeared, they, had, they were, oh, our, it was burning within us. We should have known. And if we go back to that story, one of the things that Jesus explained was this exact same phrase. This is so cool. In the text, he says, in Acts uh, 17, 2, he says, uh, excuse me, three, he said, explaining, proving that the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That exact same phrase is used of what Jesus was teaching the disciples on the road to the Emmaus, the exact same phrase. In other words, if we were to put ourselves in Jewish shoes, it would be totally understandable for us to go, wow, I thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he couldn't because he's suffering. What he proved was, no, the scriptures actually say that the Messiah had to suffer. This is predicted. They thought Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Paul probably took him to Isaiah 53, opened up by Isaiah 53 and said, look, right here, this Messiah had to suffer. Christianity is not wishful thinking. It's not. It's not a religion for the foolish. What Christianity has done over 2,000 years is what Paul did. Reasoned, explained, and proved over and over and over and over and over again. You do not have to be a master philosopher to do this. You might create a dialogue with someone and they're just asking and they might ask you a question that you'd never thought of before. It is okay to say, can I get back to you on that? Because, uh, you know, you can ask somebody else. You could Google it because everything seems to be on Google these days. And so you can look at it that way. You could do a million things, but if you could say, I don't know, let me get back to you. I mean, we, you just have to, it's okay. A basic understanding is important to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Now, an example might be, some, you might be in a conversation with someone and, and they might go, well, Jesus is nice for you but he's nice for me. Uh, he's not nice for me. And in fact, someone might say to you, you know, that's fine about Jesus for you. There's a lot of different ways to God. Jesus is one of those. I'm probably going to go with something else. And they say, well, you know, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus didn't agree with that. What are you talking about? We just have to know John 14, 6, simple. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
I mean, it's a simple understanding. If you don't, if you, if you're not quick on your feet, you just go, let me get back to you on that. It's, we've created a dialogue to prove and reason rationally about Jesus. Another example, let's say you're talking with a Muslim and you're talking about the Bible with a Muslim and a Muslim would say to you, well, you can't trust the Bible because uh, the Bible has been changed so many times. You don't even know if that Bible is the real thing that was written. It's been changed so many times. You might go, huh, let me get back to you on that. And all it would take is a a quick, uh, a quick look. At, at archaeology to know that the Bible, in fact, uh, has proved over and over and over again that this is very close, very, very close to the same thing that was written down. Um, uh, one of the coolest uh, uh, papers or archaeology discoveries was in the 1920s. A guy by the ni- name of John Rylands discovered a piece of papyri. It's just a little section of papyrus that uh, was written on on both sides in Greek. And it's a section from the Gospel of John. When you look at that section and you compare it with the text we have today, it's identical. It's nearly identical. I mean, if there's any changes, it's like in, you know, maybe a a vowel got swapped around or just minor things like that. Um, uh, The spacing of a word got messed up. But that little tiny fragment is a beautiful picture about how God has preserved his word. I mean, that's called proving the truth about Jesus. It's just saying, I may not have the answer, but there is an answer. Let me get back to you. Christianity is a reasoned faith. So we can talk about it in a reasonable way. And the first way we did that is by creating dialogue. Those are the three words that Paul, they just jump out of the text at us. Now, there's three more words that jump out about the text about how we should talk about Jesus. And the first way we do it is by creating dialogue. And the second way you'll see here is by steering people towards transformation. Paul doesn't just create a dialogue of understanding. Paul is content with just going, well, I understand you and you understand me. Very nice. Let's go our separate ways. Can't we just all get along? Paul is not, it's not okay with that. Paul says, no, there's another step and I'm going to steer you towards change. He calls for a change of position. My daughter, Olivia, is three years old. Um, As a three-year-old in the summertime, she loves to run. She loves to play. Imagine one day I walk out the front door and I find Olivia standing on the curb to the street as the cars go by. And uh, now I might stop and I might say, Olivia, could you explain your position to me about why you want to walk out into the street where there's these cars going by? And Olivia might in some way say, you know, cookie or something out in the street or toy or ball or whatever uh, in, in the way she could. She might communicate that to me. And I could say, oh, well, that makes sense. I understand you and you understand me. Very nice. And then she would proceed to go out in the street and get run over. Way too much is at stake for that. Way too much stake is just for simply understanding and walking away. Olivia's life is at stake in that situation. What am I going to do? No, I'm going to do everything in my power to persuade that girl to turn around right now and walk back towards me. So I might uh, do crazy stuff. I might be screaming, waving my arms, running. Come here, come back here. Get away from the curb. It's too important. Paul is not content to just create dialogue. Paul is moving towards transformation. In a culture like ours, we love to just have two parties, opposite parties, understand each other and appreciate each other. 
But this is not all Paul does. And here's these three more words from the text that highlight this. The the next word, the fourth word that I want to point out is the word proclaimed. Proclaimed. As we look at the text, he says, he, he was explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. There's the word proclaiming. This is the idea of a messenger delivering a proclamation or an edict. It's not hard. It's just talking about the message given to you. Because we're making a proclamation because we want to see life change. So imagine in the medieval times, uh, a king wanted to get out a message that applied to all his people. Maybe it was a proclamation about, uh, you know, how, how many taxes they would have to pay. And so the king would hire messengers to deliver this edict. They'd probably go into the town square. They'd open up the proclamation and they would read it aloud for everyone to hear. Now, uh, the king's desire is to see a behavior change. The messenger might also want to see a behavior change in his people. But the messenger's job is simply to proclaim the message. This is what Paul is doing here. He understands if he doesn't proclaim the message, people can't have transformation. Back to that medieval town. I'm sure there are people that hated that edict. More taxes are coming. The messenger might be, well, you know, roll up the scroll. You'd be best to obey this because if you don't, the army is coming and they're going to squash you. So I'm just saying you better get on board. But he doesn't have to get all bent out of shape, does he? Oh, they were saying mean things about me. You know, they, they were saying, it's not the messenger's message. It's the king's message. And in so many ways, when we come in, we get so freaked out because you know, we so desire for people to have change in their life. And we want to see this, but they might say something bad about me or they might not like me. This is not your message. This is the king's message. It's the gospel of Jesus. That's one misunderstanding we have sometimes is that we don't proclaim for life change because we're too afraid what someone would think about us. There's another mistake I think that sometimes we make in proclamation. Sometimes we get the message wrong. Uh, and an interesting thing about this is sometimes we tell it, well, listen, all God wants you to do is just ask Jesus into your heart and then we're all good, which is a a phrase that's really not found in the Bible, not in that context, in the context that we usually use it. And, uh, and that kind of seems absurd. You want to talk about your faith in a reasonable way? People don't even understand that. I mean, you know, like I, I've been in love with my wife for a long time now, 20 plus years. Uh, but I, I never once asked Clarissa into my heart. Not once. Not once did I ever ask her into my heart. I mean, it just, it sort of sounds absurd to us. If we're going to proclaim the truth, we have to get this right. This is more. This is about repentance. This is about forgiveness. This is about substitution, what Jesus did on our part. This is about uh, being enlisted in a kingdom work that he's doing. This is about so much more. This is so important to us. Proclamation. So let's be clear. The gospel is that the whole world, including you and me, were wrecked by sin. We bear the guilt of this. But God came to us when we couldn't move. And he is reconciling us and desires to reconcile the whole world back to himself. And that happens through faith. Proclaim. It's an important word for transformation. 
The, the fifth word that I want to point out in the text is the word persuade. Uh, verse 17, I mean, chapter 17, verse 4, he continues. Some of the Jews there in Thessalonica were persuaded to join Paul and Silas. There's that word, persuaded. Um, this word means to act on the basis of what was recommended. Uh, Jane Johannesson recently recommended to my wife that she join Farrell's uh, 10-week boot camp. And, uh, uh, and my wife is doing it. It's amazing. She pers- Jane persuaded her. I think they're all crazy. But Jane persuaded her to do this. And it, it's been really, really good. I'm so proud of my wife for doing it. She's doing such a fantastic job. She was persuaded or convinced In the gospel, we are aiming for people to become followers of Jesus, to become Christians. So let's acknowledge this because somehow we seem to forget this in our pluralistic culture. God's power working through us, through that power, we are trying to persuade people to move from death to life. Transformation. The sixth word I want to point out as I wrap up today, almost wrap up today, is uh, 17, the last half of verse 4. In that same fact, he persuaded. So some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. This is an easy word. As we're steering people towards change, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum, does it? We're asking people to walk alongside, to join us. Let's not forget this. Uh, People joining us, it's like this journey that we're walking together. And we're not saying to people, hey, just do this thing and you're on your own. No, we're, at, we're inviting people to walk with us. Walking Community Church, we talk about this value all the time. Transformational relationships. Because we believe that change happens most effectively and most often in the kingdom of God when God works through other people in our lives. It's one of the ways. Uh, We often talk about the engine of of transformation. It's fueled by God's uh, word, by God's spirit, and God's people. We want to do this with people, walk alongside. This is how we steer towards change. We talk about Jesus in a a reasonable way when we create dialogue and steer towards transformation. I want to quickly talk about a little bit about the text kind of points us in this direction. What should we expect when we do talk about Jesus in a reasonable way? This story in Acts continues, and I sort of got hung up here in the first four verses, but hang on because I want to show you then what happens when we talk about our faith in a reasonable way. What should we expect? Well, first of all, we have to understand that some will receive this proclamation. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica believed it. A a lot of others didn't. And so we see that some will receive it, but some will not. You know, the Jews in the story here in Thessalonica, they got ticked off and they attacked Paul. Uh, They actually stirred up the pagans in the town to get mad at Paul to drive him out of town. So if you think of the irony of this, the Jewish people were supposed to be a light to the entire world. That was the proclamation given to them back in Genesis 12, that they were supposed to be a blessing to the entire world. The very people to whom they were supposed to be a blessing, these Jews Jews decided to use them. Rather than ministering to them, they used them. It's a great irony. Some, Some will not receive the proclamation. They go after Paul and company. 
Paul and company get hidden away. They don't know who to grab, so they grab a local convert to Christianity there in town, a local follower of Jesus. His name is Jason. Luke writes in a way that we should know who Jason is because his audience probably knew who Jason was. Uh, We don't really know who he was because we don't really get any other picture of who this Jason guy was. But here he is. They grab Jason. They mistreat him. They make him post bond. and, And the Christians sneak Paul and company out of Thessalonica and send him to the next town. And so the story moves to Berea. They agreed, the, the, the Bereans, they get there, and Paul does the exact same thing. He goes to the synagogue, he reasons, he explains, he proves, he, he proclaims, he explains. Uh, but there's a different result here. Look at, when he goes into Berea, look at what it says. This is an important verse. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why were they of noble character? For they received the message that Paul proclaimed with great eagerness. And they examined the scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. Here's an important point to make. The Bereans were not of more noble character simply because they agreed with Paul. Some did, some didn't. They were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they, they, they heard it and they wrestled with it and they examined the scripture. Most of the time, people don't even consider the word of the Lord. And even sometimes us Christians don't, do we? I mean, sometimes we're like, I am way too busy to allow the word of God to change my life. I mean, if we just would take an honest look at ourselves. The Bereans were willing to examine the scripture honestly and let it change their life if what Paul's saying was true to scripture. I was at Menards the other day, uh, you know, walking there in the joyful wonderland of Menards and I'm walking by and there is off to the side. I know if you've been to Menards, you've probably experienced this. The Des Moines Register salesperson, you know, like you're trying to shove a Des Moines Register. You know, the, the print version of media is maybe belonging to a, a past generation. And, and I think that they're trying to drum up whatever business they can. And, uh, and so I, I saw him there. And my first thought was, uh, don't make any eye contact. Right? If I make eye contact, I'm going to get sucked in and he's going to offer me a free paper and I don't need $40 a month or I don't know what it costs. I don't need that in my life right now. And so I don't need another expense. You guys, sometimes we do that same thing with the Bible. I don't even want to make eye contact. You ever have a period in your life like that? Like, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that this word will change me or transform me or ask me to do something. I don't have time for that right now. I don't have any bandwidth for that right now. I'm just afraid to look. But the Bereans were of more noble character because they weren't afraid. They said, it will be what it will be. And I'll look scriptures in the eye and examine them and be changed. So what should we expect? Well, first of all, we need to expect ourselves to be changed by the word. We need to understand that people will respond differently. You know, a few Thessalonians said yes. (laughs) A few of them ran them out of town. Some Bereans considered their words. Some joined the Thessalonians and threw them out of town. The story continues. Thessalonians heard that Paul and company were in Berea, just a town down the road. And so they were like, oh. Well, we don't want them in that town either. We're going to go there and we stir things up. They made false accusation. And so the church in Berea goes, we got to get these guys out of town. And so since Paul was on the hot seat, they whisk him away to Athens all by himself. 
Timothy and Silas stayed behind in Berea in hiding. Paul, all by himself, gets dropped off in Athens. And Aaron Savage next week is preaching on this text from Athens. And I'm super excited uh, to hear what Aaron has to say about this this passage in Athens. It's going to be great. But for a while, Paul's on his own there. And Paul has gotten kicked out of every town. Think about that. Every town in Macedonia he's been in, he's got kicked out of. I would think Paul might be at some point going, God, what's going on with that? I had a vision. You give me a vision. There was a Macedonian man. He said, come over to Macedonia. I'm like, okay, God must be wanting me to go to Macedonia. So I go over to Macedonia. And first thing I do is land in Philippi and I get thrown in jail and kicked out of town. So then I go to Thessalonica and I get persecuted and beat up and whatever and thrown out of town. And then I'm in Berea and guess what? It happens again. I get thrown out of town and now I'm all by myself here at Athens. We don't ever hear... Luke say that Paul complained? I mean, it's got to be hard. But it may not be easy. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's thing is, listen, I have a reasoned, reasonable faith, and I want to just continue to create reasonable dialogue. I want to continue to push people towards transformation, even though I know that typically when I ask people to change, when we ask anyone to change, it's hard. It may not be easy, but Christianity is a reasoned faith and it should be talked about in a reasonable way. We don't have to think of Christianity as just a Kierkegaardian leap of faith, a blind leap out into nowhere. We can know and understand and be reasoned about our faith in a way that lets us talk about it reasonably, creating dialogue, steering towards transformation. I close with this story. Pete, you can come up. So um, when I was a kid, uh, my, my grandparents on my dad's side were just really old. Like most people's grandparents were like not old and mine were just ancient. And, uh, and I was always a little bit embarrassed by this. Um, one of the things that embarrassed me about my grandmother was that she, uh, in her late 80s, uh, it's, it's just as a kid, I was just embarrassed because she couldn't really see anything. And she had a really hard time hearing stuff. So when you talked to her, you had to shout at her. And she had pretty much lost all sense of smell because she had these cats in her house that I think they just, I don't think they even knew what a litter box was. And so, you know, you just walk into her house and, and I was just always embarrassed by her. And so I was like, I don't want to talk about my grandma. Like if she'd be around, I'd like not have my friends over. And, uh, you know, it was, I'm not proud that I did that, but that's sort of how I reacted towards my grandma. It took till later, uh, she actually got to hold Nicholas in her arms before she died, my firstborn child. And, uh, and it was after she died that I sort of realized what I missed out, you know, focusing on all the things about her that I was embarrassed about. I missed my grandmother, who was an amazing woman, who for 60 plus years served her husband and her family. And it was her desire to, to uh, support them and help them be the best people that they could be. And my grandma labored and worked tirelessly. She was a woman of character, and she had a hilarious sense of humor if you got to understand her. And so afterwards, I I started to think, I wish my friends now could have met my grandma. I wish that my kids could have known my grandma. And I think sometimes if we really think about it, we think about Jesus like I had thought about my grandma. 
like, well, you know, I, I can't really explain him. And it's a little embarrassing or hard to talk about, so I'd rather not. But, oh, if we could understand, if we really internalized the incredible person and character about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives, it would help us to talk about it not in just terms like an embarrassing leap of faith, but in terms of a solidified person living in us. His spirit is living in us, changing us, transforming us, and wanting us to change the world around us. And I want you to meet him. Because he's so powerful. That's what Paul did in Thessalonica. That's what he did in Berea. He talked about his faith in a reasonable way. By creating dialogue and steering towards change. Would we do the same? Would you stand as we close and sing together? We need God's help to do this. We cannot do this on our own. And we need his help.